Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 116. This is our question and answer session from the Virginia Beach, Virginia seminar we just held at Iron Asylum Gym. We are back in business with our seminars, and we have three left in 2020. We're going to be in Chicago at the end of October. Then we'll be in Boston in November, and then Dallas, Texas in December. We'd love to see you there. So uh, check out the link in the description below if you'd like to join us at one of our seminars for 2020. We're working on our 2021 schedule right now. Obviously, COVID has everything up in the air, but uh, yeah, we are working on it and moving forward. So let's hop into this week's podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining us here at our first seminar back since COVID-19. We're here in Norfolk, Virginia at Iron Asylum Gym. Thank you so much for coming out. Nobody clapped this time. Uh, yeah, all right, thanks. Uh, thank you for watching on YouTube if you're checking this out. Uh, we're going to answer some questions that were submitted um, during our seminar. Thank you uh, for doing that. If your question does not get answered here, sorry, go to our forum, we'll answer it there. Uh, and if that doesn't work, uh, you should hop on one of my Instagram lives every Wednesday, 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I'll try to answer it there. And if that doesn't work, uh, DM Austin. <laughs> he, no, he's very active and responsive to DMs, particularly ones that go to his unread folder. He's just, yeah, he's on it. So that works. Okay, question one. Does intra-workout nutrition make a difference, such as uh, Gatorade or other simple carbohydrates during a workout? I think we're talking about two different things with those examples. Uh, if you're talking about uh, Gatorade versus, or like Gatorade Zero, for example, or simple carbohydrates, because there's some difference with respect to electrolyte content there. I think for most people who are pursuing regular, just simple resistance training, barbell training, um, the type of exercise that that is, the demands of the exercise typically are not going to make intra-workout carbohydrate supplementation really necessary. I would say a similar thing with respect to the electrolyte concentration for people who are doing reg just routine barbell-based resistance training like in a gym like this. I think there can be some considerations depending on the environment that the person is in. That would be one thing. And then other specific aspects of their training. So environment, I'll give, use myself as an example who routinely trains in an outdoor garage in South Texas, upwards of 100, 110 degree temperatures, 90 minute to two hour session, losing substantial or not insignificant amounts of sweat, uh, there, you could make a point for comparing, if I was just drinking lots and lots and lots of plain water during that session, let's say I ended up needing to drink you know, two liters of plain water during that session versus something that had some electrolyte uh, uh, concentration in it, like Gatorade, although I would also argue that the electrolyte concentration of Gatorade is probably too low for that purpose. Insufficient. Um, I could make a case for using something that had some added electrolytes, some added sodium, potassium, et cetera, during that session would be reasonable, knowing that I'm not like measuring my blood levels throughout this session, but losing tons of sweat and I would prefer to replace a similar type of fluid compared to plain water if I'm going to need to use a lot of it. The consequence to drinking lots and lots of plain water is you can actually dilute your blood sodium levels down, condition called hyponatremia, a few other uh, consequences that are best avoided. Of course. In the course of somebody who's training doing that, it's not necessarily going to be life-threatening in most typical training situations, but you hear news stories every year about you know, college kids who go through hazing rituals and they drink tons of water until some kid dies or something like that. And so hyponatremia is real and, and potentially risky. So that would be the point I would make on the electrolyte front. Uh, for carbohydrate uh, consumption, again, for regular routine, like our type of barbell training, I think for most people it's not necessary, assuming that you're eating reasonably the rest of the day. You, ha you haven't been you know, fasted for 24 hours when you go to lift, in which case, yeah, you should probably get something in you uh, if you want to perform well during the session. But you know, myself, I typically eat anywhere from 90 minutes to three hours, somewhere in that range before I train or consume something in that, in that period of time. Um, so I don't find for myself that consuming carbohydrates during the session is necessary. I think probably some folks who do extremely high volume bodybuilding training or something, they may have different opinions on this, but that's kind of outside my scope or what I would, what I would want to uh, manage myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think for resistance training, uh, when considering adding an electrolyte drink, repl electrolyte replacement drink, um, one, the evidence on this is very underwhelming uh, as far as 
suggesting any performance improvement either in the short term or like your next session being better. So I don't think I could recommend it based on uh, current evidence. If you prefer the palatability, that way it tastes, right? And you're going to be consuming a lot of fluid because you train in somewhere that's very hot or humid or both, or you sweat a lot, that it seems totally reasonable to me, uh, but I don't know that you need to do that uh, routinely. Main thing that's going to predict how well you do in those situations is what you ate and drank leading up to that, and not just that day, but also the series of days and, and weeks before that. So uh, currently the best fluid intake guidelines we have for athletes are the NATA, North America Training Association guidelines. You guys can check those out if you're watching this online. Put them in the description below. That kind of outlines the complexities here. Basically people sweat at different rates, different concentrations of electrolytes are in different environments, trained for different durations of time. So making it like again, a specific hydration sort of recommendation is impossible. But with respect to performance improvement, like if you drink a Gatorade, will your you know, bench press go up? Like, probably not. Um, and then as far as carbohydrates or otherwise eating food during a workout. So again, the data right now on resistance training is not impressive at all. And so from a performance standpoint, would not necessarily recommend consuming food during a workout unless you personally prefer it, which is the same way I feel about timing of like a pre-workout meal. I personally like eating about two hours before I work out, but I don't like set a stopwatch after I finish my last fight to say, two hours, it's now time to lift. That's just how it ends up working on my daily schedule. Other people like to eat a little closer to their workout or even a little further apart. I agree with Austin, as long as you're not fasted, it's a good idea. And then um, that all kind of goes out the window when we start talking about endurance training, particularly endurance training that's lasting for over 90 minutes, two hours or longer than that. There's actually uh, recommendations from the International Sports Society of Nutrition talking about a uh, actual carbohydrate recommendations per uh, duration of time. I don't remember what they are offhand, but they actually give like a carbohydrate recommendation. And I think that would be a good place to start if you're an endurance-minded individual, but then I, I'd have to ask you like, why are you watching the Marble Medicine YouTube channel? It's the wrong channel for you. <laughs> they still want to get jacked, man. Yeah, no, it's, it's okay. fine. So in relation to your resistance training, like you don't need any goo packs or like, you know. Uh, what else would you, would you have? If you, were, if you were running a marathon and you knew that you needed a snack in the middle, what would be your snack? I, I know what mine is, but you go first because I know you like answering stuff on the spot. <laughs> uh, well, if you're going to have to consume it while you're running, mm -hmm. then I kind of tend to agree that those kind of gel pack things are fairly quick and convenient and easy to throw down instead of something you need to chew. Sure. Well, one, I'm not a very fast runner. I know this surprised you. And certainly if I'm running a marathon, I'm not moving very quickly. Okay. So, so you're going to sit down and have a meal because you may as well. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. You're not winning. <laughs> I'm definitely not winning. The whole idea is to finish. And I think, you know, I don't want, but I don't want to get sick later either. Okay. So for me, it's going to be an Elvis Presley, which is a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> with a banana. And that's delicious. Yeah, that won't work. <laughs> well, I'm not going to run with it, but I wasn't running in the first place. I was already walking. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, probably a beer. It's got a bunch of electrolytes in it. Good at replen you know, rehydrating. And uh, also takes the edge off because I'm like, should I really keep going? Fair enough. Yep. <laughs> Pro tip. All right. Question number two. If hospitalized, should I have somebody bring me whey protein? <laughs> You know, this I thought this was a funny question. Not a silly question. I liked it. Yeah. I mean, so when I was uh, when I was an intern, I did try to routinely order people double protein when I was putting in their nutrition, uh, like Rex. So you have to put in orders for every patient you admit, and I and for diet, you know, you pick. Oh, are they NPO, so they can't eat anything, or is it just you know, liquids or whatever? Uh, I would routinely put in double protein, and every time I would get a page. Be like and the why? dietitian asking yeah. why? Why? And I'm like, I mean, look, they're at risk for sarcopenia. <laughs> like, I feel like this is. And they're like, no, this is wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, if look, if I was hospitalized, I would try to eat more dietary protein. And I'm not saying that just because I'm like protein or gains. It's just the thing is uh, the risk of like critical illness, myopathy, bed rest, and its effect on your anabolic resistance. All those sort of factors, in addition to not training would all put you at a much higher risk for losing muscle tissue. And for most folks, especially those who don't have like a profound amount of extra muscle tissue to lose, uh, having a concentrated source of dietary protein that uh, is available to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and is also relatively low in calories and is easy to consume seems like a good deal. 
So, you don't, I mean, if you can't get it in the hospital, because they would give you Insure or something, or Boost or something like that, yep. which is effectively a protein shake that is low in protein. <laughs> <laughs> with, well, with plenty of sugar in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's got calories, and so people can consume that, and I'm not saying that it's bad universally. I'm just saying that if you're, you know, if you're going to have the Insure, like, I want the extra 20 grams of protein, too. Yeah. So get you, get you some whey. Yeah, I mean, I think that's reasonable. On the other hand, the, the uh, counter-argument that I make frequently when we're talking about in-hospital diets, because I am involved in making these decisions frequently, sure. is that um, it's unlikely to make a big difference on people's long-term outcomes when most hospital stays are not going to be particularly long. Sure. If you're in an unfortunate situation where you're in the hospital for like three months, then sure, I can make an argument that it's going to make a big difference there. But sometimes, you know, I'll frequently, majority of the patients that I admit to the hospital are going to be in the hospital for, you know, three days or less, uh, most of them, and fewer are going to be lo there longer than that, and then the fewest are going to be there for like weeks to months on end. So somebody who's going to be in the hospital for a day or two days or three days, we're going to say, oh, they have heart disease, so we're going to put them on a heart-healthy diet for a day in the hospital. I'm like, that doesn't really do anything. So I tend to not be super picky about that because ultimately what it ends up doing is just restricting the patient's choices when they're in the hospital and they're already miserable enough. And there's no sense in my mind torturing them for something to give them like two meals that fit this criteria that really. So the bigger deal would be if we could get them to consume <laughs> sufficient dietary protein in the weeks, months, and years leading up to the hospitalization. Yep. So they're super jacked when they go to the hospital yeah. and they're at lower risk of in-hospital mortality and arguably they don't need to potentially go into the hospital at all if the condition could have been averted. So I think that's far more important than worrying about an in-hospital diet because most hospital stays are relatively short. But to the extent that you're going to be there for a while, uh, uh, as long as you don't have any reasons not to feed somebody's gut, uh, yeah, yeah. then sure, you can give them some protein if they're going to be there for a while. <laughs> if you were going to be in the hospital for seven days, you, t you take it some way? Maybe. I'm not going to be going out of my way to get it though. No, but you know Lorraine, you know Lorraine's bringing you some way. <laughs> yeah. Pro probably that strawberry junk that you keep <laughs> in the back of your pantry. Yeah, I know. All right, related, does a strength athlete ever achieve enough hypertrophy? Is there a point in the athlete's development where there is no longer a need to make the muscle larger and only to make them stronger? It's a complicated question. Um, so enough hypertrophy, I mean, I that's like saying, you know, you ever get jacked enough? <laughs> you ever make too much money? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know that you can say yes to that. So uh, as far as in an athlete's development where they no longer need to make the muscles larger and only need to make them stronger, that assumes that these happen like independently. And I don't know that I view them as like two independent processes. I think that the amount of muscle mass increase that occurs that co-occurs with strength increase, particularly during at high level strength athletes is much smaller than what occurs in like physique athletes, bodybuilders, et cetera, who are like primarily just training for size increases and not at all for strength uh, increases. But I think that there's still some hypertrophy occurring uh, nonetheless, even if it's relatively small. Now that being said, the actual hypertrophy process is rather complicated as far as like, does the myofibrillar hypertrophy, just the contractile protein, does that precede some of the sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, which tends to create an a more substantial increase in muscle cross-sectional area? Or does the one you know, precede the other? That stuff's still being sussed out. Um, and so this is still an, a an active area of research. But for my, from a practical standpoint, I think trying to get as jacked as possible um, using uh, while still doing the specific exercises, the specific for your sport and the correct intensity ranges to make them go up would be the, would be the goal. I don't ever think you say, ah, I'm jacked enough. I'm going to cut the volume down. Yeah, this part, last part of this question where it says there's no longer a need to make the muscles larger and only to make them stronger. I think that creates an, an kind of an artificial dichotomy or separation between those two things when really at least there's there is to be fair some debate in the research world about how much hypertrophy contributes to strength development and performance but I tend to lean on the side and I think you probably do too that um, strength performance of a particular muscle one of the contributing factors to that strength potential is muscle size um, the other major contributor would be the neurological, like the skill, the recruitment uh, kind, of, kind of aspect. 
of it. And so you can't really say, I don't need to make the muscle larger and only to make it stronger when muscle size is probably a contributor to muscle strength. Uh, and so I think that to the extent that you want to continue making your muscles stronger, uh, you should strive to make them larger as well. And I don't think there's actually a way for you to aim to make them stronger without generating some amount of hypertrophy along the way in the process. Pain lecture made reference to a coach asking too often if pain exists, which might create the probability that pain manifests in a client. What would you recommend for managing slash receiving feedback on pain in the clinical world so as not to ignore patients' perceptions but still maximize the rehab process? I can start. All right. <laughs> so this was the reference where I was talking about how if you're a coach and you're coaching somebody who has some discomfort, say in their back, after every rep or after every set, and you're asking, how's your back feel? How's your back feel? How's your back feel? Constantly drawing more attention to that area because we know that attentional focus plays a big role in people's experience of pain. And so I would make the recommendation to not do that when you're coaching people. This isn't to swing the other way and to say, just to ignore any symptom that they report, but you don't necessarily need to go fishing for that. In a rehab context, if you are a skilled clinician and observer and communicator with your, with your patient, then you can observe what they're doing and then just ask them what their thoughts are after a given set. How'd that go? Do you feel comfortable increasing the load? Something like that. Uh, and given that you've had the discussion, the education process ahead of time saying, we're gonna work in a range of tolerable symptoms and aim to progress gradually from there, then you can get that feedback. They can volunteer it to you rather than you go and fishing for it from them. So to the point where if they're feeling comfortable and okay, then you can celebrate that and say, that's awesome, that's great news, you're feeling, you're feeling good, that's a good sign, we can, we can keep progressing in this process. Um, whereas if they volunteer that this is pretty uncomfortable or I'm concerned about this or this is freaking me out or I, I don't wanna go up anymore, then you can respect that and maybe have a discussion around it and modify the plan accordingly rather than constantly going again, fishing and, and drawing their attention to an area that their attention may not necessarily be on. Um, focusing their attention more on the task and celebrating the victory of that that went well, um, uh, I think is probably the way that I would go in a, in a clinical context. I recognize, however, that in the clinical world, there's some uh, tendency and rule, potentially even rules and requirements to get patients' pain scores on a scale of one to 10, and that can be annoying, but you don't need to do a pain score on a scale of one to 10 after every set either. So I would do the bare minimum on that, on that front as far as getting your your, your pain scores and then just focusing on the task and, and not unnecessarily drawing attention to where it doesn't need to be. Yep. I think the only, just a practical sense, um, I actually don't recommend that most coaches ask about it. You, you can, if you notice somebody who's demonstrating pain-related behavior, which during a lift would be some sort of like slowdown that occurs like during the descent of a squat, for example, or like hesitation during a particular lift that is abnormal because you've worked with this person before, you can ask like, hey, was that painful for you? Or you can ask them even a more open-ended question, like what's going on, um, just to get them to start talking about it. But uh, I, and my general recommendation is to not ask, does that hurt after any set? <laughs> the only time I think that's appropriate is if you're trying new stuff to try to work around an existing injury and you're kind of like little on the fly trying new things to see if that's if they're still sensitive to that particular movement so someone had low back pain like leah when we were training together in santa cruz quite frequently um, if she had like a low, low back pain um, i'd we do like a mid shin rack pull and i would you know after she did a set I'd be like how'd that feel how'd that feel is the right question there yeah. i think yeah. yeah and then if that didn't you know if she's you know said ah it's still it's still you know still pretty sensitive, it's still aching pretty good. We try another thing and I would say again, how does that feel? Something like that. Yep. Um, I, I think, you know, the big thing that people, I don't know if they feel this way, but I certainly think it gets perceived this way. It's like, you have to be perfect with this pain stuff. Like, and if you mess up, like, dang it, ah, I just, I ruined it. Yeah. That's not the case. Like we're all humans. We all make mistakes. We all say the wrong things sometimes. The important part isn't, the important part is to not compound an error with another error. Like, oh, did that hurt? And you're like, oh no, I said it. I said the H word. Oh, dang. <laughs> now you're freaking out about it. And then they're like, what? And so some of that actually gets transferred to them. And they're like, they start feeling guilty about having pain, the normal human experience. And then the stuff can start uh, kind of snowballing. And so I think it's just like, yeah, look, we all make mistakes and don't use the right language all the time. We have certain goals for how we communicate and let's try to do the best we can. But um, in the coaching setting, I think it just plan on saying, how does that feel? 
um, mm -hmm. if you notice something strange yeah. in the neighborhood. Yep, cue Ghostbusters theme. Okay, should the elderly be prescribed <laughs> anabolic steroids? <laughs> so there are actually some situations where anabolic steroids have been researched for medical use. This includes severe burns, because burn patients, whole body burns and things like that, is a major like hypercatabolic state. So there's some research in that world. Um, and other syndromes uh, where there is severe muscle and fat wasting, a syndrome called cachexia. Uh, so anabolic steroids have also been researched in like HIV AIDS related cachexia, yep. where these patients are just literally skin and bones, they've wasted away. So this is being looked at. I think part of the reason outside of the obvious like social stigma around this stuff that they're not uh, um, kind of used more liberally in practice is actually when you look at the available research that we have on this stuff in elderly patients, the outcomes are actually not like mind-blowingly good. Yes. Um, and so I think that until such point as that evidence would emerge where we put an elderly individual, perhaps, uh, presumably sarcopenic individual, not just somebody who's elderly for the sake of it, um, on anabolics, if we see fantastic uh, uh, you know, results in terms of quality of life or, or other kind of positive outcome measures, then I wouldn't expect medical societies or organizations to recommend this stuff until we have a solid evidence base to stand on. I think a big part of it is that that doesn't, doesn't actually exist yet, and I'm actually open to the possibility that they may not deliver the benefits that, that, that we all assume yeah. they would. Rather, I think that we should pull the levers that we know work right now, getting physical activity up and getting the nutritional intake to where it should be, and I definitely think it's reasonable for us to research this stuff. Um, but going back to the root of the question, should, it, should the elderly be prescribed anabolic steroids? At this time, no. Uh, that's not, wouldn't be my recommendation because we don't have clear evidence of consistent benefit, uh, whereas there is some potential for harm, particularly in elderly who, again, remember the number one cause of death in the US and the world that I talked about on day one yesterday is cardiovascular disease. And there are cardiovascular risks associated with these medications if you were to give them to patients. So we're giving them medications with some known risk from a cardiovascular standpoint and potentially other organ systems that can be evolved, uh, involved. There can be side effects on the liver depending on the type of anabolic steroid and the route of administration as well as on the kidneys and a few other uh, uh, kind of uh, potential side effects and complications for unclear benefit. So we need research to demonstrate clear benefit before we're gonna comfortably prescribe it. And that really stands, in my opinion, for any medical intervention that we're gonna do, I would prefer to have good evidence of benefit before I do it. And that has been particularly relevant recently with COVID when it comes to deciding how we're gonna treat these patients. Yeah, I won't get good evidence before I decide to give somebody particular medication that has known risks and unknown benefits. Yeah, I, I feel similarly, ma mainly with respect to the, uh, obviously the risk benefit analysis, but with the existing data on this, if there was robust data showing like, yeah, when you give elderly patients uh, testosterone, they grow huge muscles and their quality of life improves and all this other stuff improves, then I think it would already be widely adopted. Right now you have um, you know, a few, relatively few amount of studies, particularly looking at muscle wasting and muscle and fat combined wasting diseases. So like Austin said, HIV, burn patients, other diseases that causes cachexia like liver disease, et cetera. And then a few like fringe papers that like randomly pop up, like using testosterone in women who have chest pain, like angina. Or using, yeah, I remember that one, yeah. it was weird. Or, or now the most recent paper that came out on this is testosterone use in depression. Um, and there's other papers obviously out there on testosterone, but much fewer on other anabolic agents, right? So when people are talking about like uh, oxandrolone or anavar or decadurabolin or whatever, this is the same case that SARMs, the selective androgen receptor modulators, these are the new drugs that are on the street. Well, they're on the street right now, but they're being researched. These are effectively, they're supposed to be like steroid analogs, like work like steroids, but have none of the side effects because they're selective for the receptors that they actually bind to. But unfortunately, during the phase two clinical trials, when they're doing, using them on these older people, they're not getting the benefits that are purported, like bigger muscles, stronger muscles, being able to you know, be more active or, or anything like that. And so when you have this data that like overall suggests not a reliable benefit, and then there are known risk factors, it makes sense that the medical community is kind of like, mm. even during our boards prep, I remember on like step one, there was a question about using anabolic steroid, like a patient who was using anabolic steroids. And then like one of the lines was, data at, at present does not show or shows that 
anabolic steroids don't provide a performance benefit in sport. Please counsel the patient accordingly. Mm. And I was like, oh, Vinny down the street at Gold's might have a different opinion. <laughs> yeah. um, so as far as how this works in the future, I think if better data comes out, that'd be useful. In order to get that better data, we need to do more studies. And I think that in general, medicine is fairly liberally leaning, you know, liberal leaning. And so as new data emerges, I don't know that any stigma is going to prevent us from like yeah. adopting the latest practices, uh, provided ample evidence exists. There was a big series of studies that came out, uh, I think maybe last year or two years ago, called the testosterone trials. It was a big set of multiple studies on testosterone for various outcomes. So if you're interested in this topic, I'll just look up, look those up and get some results. Yep. I can read this one. Okay. Uh, number six, when I first started nutrition coaching, I was pretty strict in my approach. Do this, do that. However, as I've been evolving, I've taken a more personable, empathic approach. Motivational interviewing has been invaluable. Nice. As a side effect, though, I inadvertently am now a counselor. This also means that I've been getting mentally and emotionally drained. This is not something I expected when I went down this career path. How do you guys personally take care of your mental, emotional energy? I, I think that anybody who's involved uh, particularly in the healthcare fields, you know, has a, there's a difficult balance between like taking care of yourself, the person, and then caring for others. But you went into this field uh, to take care of others, and some days are harder than others, and you give more than you get, and in other days you get more than you give. Um, as far as how an individual needs to approach their own particular needs from like a mental health standpoint, um, I think services that are underutilized are mental health services. If you need to, if you feel better talking to a counselor or uh, uh, some sort of uh, uh, psychiatrist, that can all be useful. Me personally, I have found reasonably good sort of balance, if you will, um, by trying to maintain a set of boundaries that works for me. Meaning that I can, it's pretty easy to get kind of really involved in somebody else's sort of like this is their journey and this is how I'm helping them. Um, and these are all their issues that we're kind of working out. But I have to also step back and understand that's not my particular situation. And, and um, in addition, it's maybe not okay if they're emailing me five or six times a day. And so creating those boundaries where, hey, this is the expectations that we're setting as far as communication, like frequency, style, what I can be responsible for. But I think overall having some sort of uh, boundaries, uh, like professionalism boundaries are, are useful. I think also uh, kind of understanding the field that you're getting into, kind of expect some of this and then using um, like mental health services would also be useful. Like people need, counselors need counselors. Uh, it's very underutilized, uh, this is underutilized. And then um, I don't know that there's any reliable, like a specific approach that I think universally works for all folks. So finding your kind of stuff that, that makes it uh, viable for you uh, can be useful. I mean, burnout is super common in medicine and uh, you know, among some specialties more than others, I get to see horrible things very frequently uh, and it, burnout is common around me uh, as well among kind of fellow, fellow clinicians. So I definitely agree with everything that, that Jordan said with respect to professional boundaries outside of work, for example, if you feel like you're having issues from a mental health standpoint using those kind of resources. As far as my own personal habits on this front, this is a big part of why you know people say, how is it that you've gone like a decade and missed one week of training? It's like, well, this is why <laughs> I make sure that I train. Uh, because for me personally, that is my most useful way to maintain some uh, kind of control over my life, some aspect of consistency, something that I enjoy that I can look forward to. Um, when I, whenever I do end up getting out of the hospital, whether it's early or late, I plan to train regardless and don't skip that session. Even, you know, if it's 10 or 11 at night, I did that plenty of times uh, in, in residency because that gave me a sense of continued control over my life. That's a big part is if you feel like you're not in control, right? So loss of self-efficacy over your situation loss of autonomy, that can be a big deal. And then similarly, you know, if you, you know, if you're a coach, uh, biting off more than you can chew can be a big problem, right? In terms of your client load, for example, something that you actually do have control over. There was a period of time when I was in residency where I was doing similarly like multiple jobs like I do right now, but with respect to residency, I did not have control over my life. I had to be in the hospital at certain times. Um, and responsible for whatever was going on there at that particular time. And then I had these other things, coaching and you know some telemedicine stuff I was doing outside 
um, that I did have some control over, but I definitely bit off more than I can chew. And I like cracked pretty hard around that period of time, recognized that I bit off way more than I could chew. But at the same time, I knew that I was still training and I knew that it was temporary and that it wasn't gonna be like that forever, right? And so ultimately, fortunately, I was able to get through that and have other things that I can kind of look forward to and, and enjoy, but I've definitely, am currently in a period of time where I'm actually trying to scale back a little bit of how much I'm doing because I'm like, do I really need to be doing this much right now um, as far as all the things that I tackle and, and work on at the same time? And the very clear and obvious answer is no despite the fact that I still do them. So, so definitely easier said than done, and, and I don't have it perfected either. Um, but everything Jordan said, as well as pay, you know, paying attention to you know, uh, your workload to the extent that you have control over it, if you have more control over it, that's awesome, and, and scaling back if you need to. And uh, my bias is definitely training as far as uh, uh, some measure of consistency and constancy and something I do have control over, that may be something different for you. Take advantage of that, whatever that may be. Number seven, is liposuction ever a good idea? And I think a context for this question, you can view this question in a couple different contexts. One is in the context of our discussions all weekend here with respect to health. So I would kind of think back to when we talked about obesity and the situations where carrying excess body fat can be problematic. And in particular, we talked about how tight of a relationship there is with the abdominal waist circumference and medical complications. And the reason why that's, there's such a close relationship there is because that measurement reflects intra-abdominal or what we call visceral body fat accumulation inside the abdomen, inside the organs, inside the liver, for example, which is different visceral uh, body fat or adipose accumulations, a bit different than subcutaneous or body fat that accumulates under the skin. And so the when body fat or adipose is infiltrating your abdominal organs, your liver, your pancreas, things like that, that's when we see big time increases in diabetes risk, cardiovascular risk, things like that. Um, whereas liposuction as a treatment primarily removes subcutaneous body fat, not the kind that's inside, not the kind that's in the liver. So there's actually some data on this. There's a small study that I found while I was prepping for this where they took a group of women, some of whom had diabetes and some of whom did not, all of whom had excess body fat, and they performed serial large volume uh, uh, liposuction, removing large amounts of subcutaneous body fat. You're gonna say something? What if you just move it? Put it someplace else? Yeah. <laughs> I don't no. know why you would do that. Okay, all right. <laughs> and they serially removed this, this subcutaneous body fat, and then when they looked at how they did afterwards, they did find that their waist circumference went down as a result of move, removing body fat, obviously. Their leptin levels went down, and leptin is a hormone that is high when you have lots of body fat and low when you have less body fat, so that obviously went down. That all makes sense. When they measured their actual levels of insulin resistance and their cardiovascular risk factors, things like blood lipids and things like that, there's no change. So from a health standpoint, I do not have a good case to make for liposuction. If you say, is it ever a good idea? Well, that's strictly up to you from a cosmetic standpoint, you know, yeah. at that point. I, I would not recommend it for uh, uh, medical uh, benefits. If there is excess body fat that needs to be dealt with invasively or surgically, and there are medical issues going on, or even if there aren't, and you meet criteria based on the criteria that we talked about yesterday, I would say real bariatric surgery is far more beneficial from a health uh, uh, standpoint than liposuction would be. Because we talked about how the long-term 20, 25-year follow-up of patients who get bariatric surgery, they have much greater and much more sustained weight loss and health benefits. Like you can cure diabetes in like a couple days after getting bariatric surgery. It just like goes away, which is pretty wild. Whereas liposuction does not have any of those benefits outside of cosmetic effects. Yeah, I think if for whatever reason you're getting like visceral liposuction, Don't visceral fat liposuction, <laughs> yeah, maybe that. Um, or if the liposuction would somehow improve adherence to other lifestyle changes, if you felt like I'm gonna pay for this this procedure uh, from an aesthetic standpoint or because I feel like it's gonna jumpstart my progress and that's really gonna help keep me motivated and it, ended up, and it does as far as improving adherence to a, a health-promoting dietary pattern and exercise, like cool. But if you're just like moving it around, you know, from like front to back, I don't know that that's the move. <laughs> All right, number eight. How can we do a better job of framing exercise and diet in a positive life for our youth? For example, it's somewhat common practice for parents to not let their children leave the dinner table until they've finished all their vegetables. 
Another example of this would be coaches making their athletes run as a form of punishment. These experiences may frame healthy eating and exercise as a way that is synonymous with suffering and discomfort. How can we improve these psychosocial variables? Nice. Early uh, and or address them with adults that have already met these experiences or lived these experiences, excuse me. I picked some hard ones this time. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's just, a, so it, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with the, like the premises. So for example, like I don't know that one may necessarily associate this with like a form of punishment. Like you might, but it depends on other stuff. Like, I don't know, was your parent, you know, yelling at you, go run, cause you know, whatever. Or like, hey, let's go run around the house. Like, let's go do a lap. So maybe that's else. your suggestion, is the way that the well, recommendation or the way it's well, framed yes, matters. It, yeah, so, it, yes, it does, exactly. So for example, uh, in a, and I'm not pretending to give anybody parenting advice. Like there's very, there's a few pieces. Neither of us should do that. Parenting either. advice, relationship advice. Like, look, I'm not, I'm not your doctor for that. Like, <laughs> I think, um, so one, I, I always think that the parents leading by example probably makes for a better environment, especially for making recommendations or suggestions to their kids um, because mom and dad are already doing it you know, and so you should do it too. Um, and then also if you're going, if the, you know, needing to modify some of the behaviors that the child is engaging in, especially with respect to diet or activity, uh, the way that you're recommending them should be ideally in a form of positive way or, or, or affirming way rather than like do this, you know, in a, in a negative, in a negative light. Cause I think it just, too many risks there with uh, potentially future psychological distress around around those ac actions. But you know, trying to get kids to eat vegetables, for example. So one, like you guys should, as a family, should be eating vegetables regularly and involve the kid in preparing the vegetables and picking the vegetables and how to, you know, which way shall you prepare them? Like all that stuff would be useful because then the kids got to buy into these vegetables. Like, look, I helped make these, and then they're probably going to eat them. You know, with respect to being active, like, hey, do you want most? especially I know the, the, the parents I know that train, if they train at home, their kids want to come out into the gym and play around with mom and dad who are lifting in the gym. And so exposing them rather early on can be a positive experience rather than say, hey, get out of my hair, go run around the house. Not saying that that's how people do it, but I, th I think that leading by example and then also involving the kid in the process, like whatever process uh, can be useful because then they have a bigger buy-in oh, you just got a home gym or you're building a home gym, like, yeah, let's set it up together, you know, mm -hmm. where should this go? All this other sort of stuff uh, can, be, can be useful. As far as adults that have already had these experiences, I think you're gonna suss that out during this, uh, like the, the sort of interview process, you know, when you're taking in a new client, um, asking them, you know, what sort of barriers do they have uh, or feelings or thoughts do they have about changing their dietary patterns. And if they, something specific comes up, that's when you're gonna get there. Uh, but I, I don't routinely see that, to be honest. Um, I have, you know, the closest I get is people who say, I don't like vegetables. Yeah. And then when I explo uh, explore that, it's usually due to like, I don't like the way they taste. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, and then I'm not really sure how to prepare them in a way that taste is tasty. And so let me just go down and kind of try things. Um, nobody's coming to Barbell Medicine for like coaching who's like, I don't like exercise. Generally not. Yeah, it's just self-selecting out. Yeah. So unfortunately I don't have a lot of good advice for that if that's related to like psychological distress from early age. But I do think, again, if I could give advice to parents who have kids, it'd be to get them to be an act active in as many different ways as possible. And uh, the best way to do that is not only uh, giving them choices and opportunities, but also leading by example. So if mom and dad lift or, or otherwise are active, like the, yeah, it's highly likely the kid's going to want to join in on that. Um, it's just the normal thing to do. Yeah. I don't have a ton to add to that. I was going to say, I mean, that's kind of why I included this question was mainly to convey the message of leading by example is going to be kind of the main thing that I would, that I would suggest here for adults who've already been through this, refer back to the standard behavior change talk that we did. All the same things would yep. apply there as far as how you work with people to change their behaviors. That's, that's the idea. Did your dad lift? No. You know where my, my dad and my mom met? At the gym. Yep. There you go. My mom was an aerobics instructor. My dad was playing racquetball. And apparently, short shorts meets short shorts. Nice. Yeah, that's how I came to be. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any general guidelines for training with RPE, particularly in regards to how often and in what context RPE 10 can be considered a productive training stress? Uh, as far are there any guidelines? I'm not aware of any like practice guidelines for RPE and like when to use tens, when you use you know RP 10, when to use RP 9, when to use RP 8. 
Um, so no, as far as my general recommendation, my gestalt based on coaching and using RPE uh, to communicate how hard things should be with people for, oh, I don't know, the better part of the uh, last six years, uh, uh, almost exclusively, I rarely program RPE 10s outside of a testing situation or meet situation because I just don't think it's worth it. Meaning that I don't think that the fatigue is worth the potential stimulus that you get out of that. Um, I think that most efforts should be somewhere in that RPE six to eight range in general. That doesn't mean you never go to nine or you never do a set at five, but it just means in most of the sets I think should be RPE six to eight. And that's as far as a general guideline, like that's as close as I can get. The rep schemes can obviously vary across that, but I don't know that I'd spend too much time working well below RP6 or well above RP8, maybe here and there, but not yeah. a lot. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think that hopefully what you guys took away from the programming lecture is we're, we're, we're aiming to deliver a stimulus to the individual to elicit a response. And the weight we put on the bar is exclusively selected as a strategy to get a particular response out of somebody. And one metric of that internal load, that response that we're looking for is RPE. And I don't know that I really almost ever in a training context want to elicit a 10 out of 10 uh, situation because the closer you get to that 10 out of 10 effort, you, you may be getting in incrementally greater stimulus, but I think the rate that the fatigue cost goes up way faster. And unless there is some particular reason why the performance on that set in that session matters a whole lot, which can't really think of too many situations where that would be the case, um, then it's probably not worth the cost. I mean, there are some, sometimes where you're just like going for some arbitrary PR because you want to. Sure. Like I can think of the time, the first, when I, last fall, I squatted I, 500 for 10. I thought you were gonna say two days ago. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but that time I was only supposed to squat it for eight and I squatted it for eight and I was like, I think I got 10 and 10 would just be cool to do. So I'm just gonna do this. Right? But I would not program that ahead of time to say, I'm gonna go to 10 today because I think that this is a valuable training stress. That was an excessive amount of fatigue generated from that session. And uh, I wouldn't say I regret doing it, but I wouldn't have programmed it ahead of time. Um, you could make a case for going closer to failure on isolation type movements that has been discussed. Still don't think that you need to go to 10, no. but when you're talking about general guidelines for training with RPE, I think that we can get a reasonably good training stimulus staying further away from failure on our compound movements, along with specific practice for your task, like single at seven, single at eight, double at seven, double eight, et cetera. Yeah. But for isolation stuff, you can go closer to failure because in general, the systemic fatigue you're gonna get out of it, right? Taking your, take, taking your, your, your tricep press downs to failure or something like whatever, like yeah. it's not gonna be that big of a deal. Yeah thought is that if you let people go to failure to RPE 10, that helps them calibrate their RPE scale. I, I, I know that it is an argument, I just think it's relatively weak because I don't necessarily care how accurate the RPE rating is, just as long as you're using the same scale each time so the precision is still high. But um, you know, that is an argument and- Sure. Okay. Yep. Is it ever, ever- This was an interesting one. Worthwhile to seek treatment for chronic non-specific pain? Yes. <laughs> well, I think it's worthwhile to yeah. seek treatment for pain, period. Um, I assume this question probably means like use of pain medications, um, but I'm not going to say that that means treatment. So treatment would be seeing a clinician, being evaluated for potential causes of pain, involving the patient, exploring this biopsychosocial model together, coming up with a shared management plan, and moving forward from there. So I would say if a person has pain and they're concerned about it, you should see your medical professional. If it's from training, my caveat would be hopefully they're very familiar with pain science and unfortunately I don't feel confident that that is the case. I'm not th trying to throw shade at the you know, medical establishment. It's just, look, I'm in the medical establishment and I know that that's <laughs> the case right now. So I think like our pain and rehab specialist team, those guys uh, are the best in the business and that would be my general recommendation for somebody who's got pain from training and they're like, I, I need some professional help. Yeah. But I think if somebody has pain that concerns them, they're worried about a specific thing. They're like, oh, I have this low back pain, I'm worried it could be cancer. It sounds crazy, some, but you know, that's not an unusual sort of report. It's like, oh yeah, my dad had the same sort of pain and he had cancer and that, that's why I'm afraid. Um, yeah, seeking uh, treatment 
because you're going to be evaluated and then treated based on the findings. And then again, you as the complex patient, ideally, uh, that would be a net benefit. I don't know that you need pain medications necessarily, mm -hmm. which I assume is, again, what this question actually meant. I don't know what it implied. Yeah. When I read the question, I said, I hope I didn't convey the message during my lecture that it's not worth seeking help for yeah. pain-related issues, because that's certainly not the case. Yeah, in fact, the opposite. Yeah, it's very common for people to need help. I think that we definitely provided you with information education to hopefully empower you to self-manage many of your like common routine day-to-day mm -hmm. -day aches and pains type situations. But to the extent that you're dealing with something, a pain-related you know, issue that maybe you don't fully know what to do, or you've tried what you've learned and you can't make progress, then seeking out some consultation, evaluation, some assistance from somebody you trust would be a fantastic idea. Now, we cannot guarantee what the, that person will do, will will offer you, will recommend to you, unless it's somebody from our own rehab team. Uh, you know, I've definitely seen patients who end up seeing a pain specialist or something, and you know, bad things end up getting ruled out and they get a prescription for an opioid. That probably wouldn't be the case that I would go with this myself, nor would it be the, the way that our rehab team would go. So we have a resource that we can offer that we trust and recommend without reservation. Um, but if you are struggling with, with an issue like this, then seeking help is definitely the way to go. Would yeah. recommend. Would recommend, yes. All right. How are lipid panels affected by dieting? Uh, so in general, let's talk about after you've lost weight, right? So you've dieted and lost weight, and then we'll talk about what happens while you're actively dieting. So after you lost weight, um, usually a uh, five to 10% weight loss produces a uh, about 10 to 15% reduction in LDL and maybe a little bit greater reduction in triglycerides, uh, which can be useful, um, particularly if you were carrying too much body fat before. If you lose more weight, you can see a greater decrease in those numbers. Right? So if you lost 20% body weight, you may see an even greater decrease in uh, your LDL and your triglycerides. And in general, HDL tends to stay the same. If you start exercise at the same time, HDL may even increase. Overall, good. Now, the nuance here is that if you were a candidate for statins prior to losing weight, meaning that your 10-year risk of having a bad outcome, so your 10-year risk of having a heart attack or a stroke or something like that was high and you were you know, a good candidate for statins, the treatment goal for LDL reduction is 50%. Reduce, reduce your LDL by 50%. And so if the, you know, the average amount of LDL reduction you can expect by reducing your body weight five to 10%, which is a pretty substantial weight loss, right, is, you know, 10 to 15%, you're not getting there. You're less than three times less than the sort of that minimum threshold so it doesn't mean that you shouldn't even try to lose weight, just take the statin, support big pharma. It's not what I'm saying. It's just that uh, we should not avoid medications when they provide clear benefit. And it doesn't mean that the person maybe necessarily needs to be on a statin forever. It's just to reduce that risk uh, substantially going forward, maybe that's the initial, the initial movement. Now, what happens to the lipid panel while you're actually dieting, you can think about this as uh, the body fat, you're actually liberating a lot of stored fat into the bloodstream and you're using it for fuel. And so a blood test, particularly a cholesterol test, is a snapshot in time of how much fat is in your blood, how much fat is being carried around by certain proteins in your blood. And so let's say then you stick the needle in the vein, pull out the blood, oh crap, there's way more fat in your blood at this particular time. It's like, well, yeah, it's on its way to the muscle tissue to be oxidized for fuel, for example. Um, and so you see that all the time, that people, their triglyceride levels will be uh, significantly elevated while they're losing weight. Sometimes even their LDL will be elevated while they're losing weight. It usually doesn't happen after you've lost weight and your weight, your weight has plateaued, but certainly during weight loss. So the recommendation for lipid panel intervals is about uh, is every uh, six months, I believe, after you've uh, initiated it, although some clinicians will do three-month intervals. Um, I, when I was uh, actively seeing patients and somebody was trying to lose weight and during, for lifestyle, uh, we were trying uh, lifestyle recommendations initially, I would effectively try to schedule that second lipid test till after a period of time where we were given them to lose weight and then maintain it. Meaning that if it was gonna take you more than three months to kind of lose the weight, uh, I would extend the interval time so that you are weight neutral, maintaining your weight, your new lower weight, uh, before I tested, uh, got another lipid test. Yeah, I don't think there's a great reason to check lipid panels super frequently, regardless. I mean, I, I, 
pr definitely every three months is, is I think too frequent to be super useful. I would just not check blood tests while you are actively aggressively trying to lose weight and then check things you know like yep. that after things have stabilized. So yep. last two questions. All right. If a new client reports eating below their total daily energy expenditure, but isn't losing weight, what do? Uh, I imagine we can't instantly correct under reporting. Specifically, do you still prescribe an amount of calories that should result in weight loss per the NIH if they report a total daily energy intake lower than the prescription? So basically, somebody's saying, I'm eating these calories, but I'm not losing weight, what do? So just like I was talking about in the nutrition lecture uh, yesterday, if the first you check the adherence, right? So it's like, hey, look, are you sticking to this plan? And they say yes. And you're like, okay, cool. And so you're taking them at their word and they're not losing weight at that calorie level, I would reduce calories. End of story. Um, if you do that again and they're still not losing weight, I kind of go through the same process again. We've just reduced another 250 to 500 calories, the reporting being very adherent and still not losing weight. At that point, when I check for adherence, so let's say two weeks have gone by, they still haven't lost weight, asking them, hey, how's your adherence been? Any issues? Uh, we talk about it. I usually ask for proof. Um, not in a way like I'm being an investigator here or interrogating them, but I want to see like their my fitness pal log or however they're tracking their food or something like that, just to kind of make sure like you know that they're counting things correctly. There's not some sort of error. I also check for things that people don't tend to count: certain condiments, sugar sweetened beverages, alcohol, stuff like that. Issues, things that people have trouble logging. They're like, yeah, I don't log any of my cokes because <laughs> it's liquid. So you'd be surprised. And I'm, I, you know, this obviously happened sometimes, otherwise I wouldn't have the story, but um, that, uh, that alcohol and condiments tend to be like the three biggest offenders there for things that people don't track, and then snacks. So it's like, you know, are you snacking on stuff in between meals? And you know, again, this is all in the context of somebody who's trying to lose weight, and we've low just lowered calories, and it still doesn't work. And uh, so if nothing appears odd there, then I lower, I lower calories again. I'm not averse to continuing to lower calories unless I suspect there's this really big uh, adherence issue, you know. Now, obviously, uh, we had a client uh, for a while uh, who was, you know, uh, over 200 pounds um, and then was reporting not losing weight at 1,200 calories, but reported seven out of seven, you know, every day she was very adherent. And I was like, well, let me see, I, I'd, lo I'd love to see the MyFitnessPal, you know, reports. And she's like, oh, I yeah, yeah they're, they're on my phone. I don't know how to get them to you. And I was like, well, yeah, you just take them screenshots. I just want to see them, to see what you're eating. It's like, it seems like a long process. Like, I don't know that I can get them to you. There was some resistance and I got it. And so the whole thing wasn't be like, gotcha, ha ha ha. You know, this is the issue. The, the thing was like, well, let's address the actual problem, right? What are the issues, you know, what sort of barriers do we have to adherence? And we had an even barrier to admitting there was a problem with adherence. And so, again, the, the thing isn't gotcha. The thing is, all right, we, ha we have an issue here. What's, how do we address the communication thing first and then figure out strategies to overcome the adherence issue? So that's how I address the issue and just some common things that I've seen uh, over time. Uh, Austin, you have anything to add? I don't have anything to add to that. All right, last question. How can you best mitigate the effect of shift work, like 24-hour shifts, uh, such as naps to catch up on sleep? Uh, and then how do you not nocebo yourself into thinking you'll have a bad day because you didn't get enough sleep or some other factor that is far from ideal? I can start. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> so this is something that I think both of us have some experience with, uh, having been through periods of time where we did 24, 28-hour shifts um, somewhat regularly. And there's not a great way to get, you know, quality sleep during that period of time, particularly when those shifts can be unpredictable. So there may have been some of those shifts where I was able to get some sleep during the shift. There are some where I had to be awake, alert, and doing things the entire time. And obviously there ends up being a consequence afterwards. Some of those days after the shift, you'll crash harder than others. Or if you end up getting some sleep on the shift, maybe you don't sleep as much. And so the unpredictability, the variability is problematic. It results in you generally not feeling awesome. And I think that is unfortunately probably part of the deal with doing 24 hour shifts with any degree of regularity oh, is yeah. you're not going to feel completely awesome or completely normal all the time. If they're more spaced out and relatively infrequent, then you can try to get on as consistent of a sleep schedule as you can in between, and that'll restore some semblance of normalcy. 
Um, but just the idea with sleep in general, and that this should be the takeaway if you listen to our podcast on sleep that we did with our friend, Dr. Gordon, is that consistency is kind of what tends to be the name of the game here. In particular, if we can get like our patients who we have with, uh, with insomnia, if we can get them waking up at the same time every single day, then that ends up resulting in developing sufficient sleep drive mm -hmm. over time such that they end up kind of falling into a more normal sleep, uh, a sleep wake cycle rhythm. But obviously this is a big barrier to having a consistent sleep schedule. You just have to do the best you can in terms of consistency. As far as the other part of the question where it had to do with not kind of crushing yourself by thinking you're gonna have a bad session just because you didn't get enough sleep or some other factor, I think this comes into uh, the discussion I had earlier comparing uh, external versus internal load. So external load being the absolute weight on the bar whereas internal load describes the response to that uh, training stimulus that we measure using RPE. I think that if peop for people who have excessive focus on the importance or the significance of the external load, they put all their value and self-worth on the absolute weight on the bar, I think you're gonna have some trouble with this situation, right? Because you're gonna put so much value on lifting a particular weight on a partic particular day at a particular time and your life, the cards are just not gonna fall that way. You're gonna get to that day, that time, go to lift that weight, and maybe it doesn't go, right? And that's tough. That's why we like having more, as Jordan said, malleability, flexibility in your training program, where you view the training process differently. You don't view the training process as something where you have to lift a specific weight. Rather, you're saying, I'm the, weight, the, the weight on the bar, the reps I'm doing, is merely a strategy to elicit this response that I'm trying to get. Right? And in that sense, you can change the weight on the bar and not freak out about it. Rather, you can pat yourself on the back for saying, I got the desired stimulus for where I am today at this particular time based on how I'm performing at this moment, given everything else in my life that I may or may not have control over. Right? So it can almost become a win when you go into that session, you use your auto-regulation strategy like RPE, you adjust the load accordingly, you complete the whole session, that's awesome, that's a win. You're doing more than just about anybody else out there who is doing 24-hour shifts. Guaranteed, right? Instead of viewing it as I was supposed to squat 500 today, right? But I could only squat 455. I suck, <laughs> right? Big difference in how you view that in terms of the training process. So um, this has a lot to do with kind of how, if we're going to be goal oriented, the nature of goals that we use. Are the goals we use performance based, right? Where you insist on performing, lifting a particular weight? Are they outcome based? Like I'm lifting to win only. If you ain't first, you're last, right? Or are they process-based goals, right? Where I'm going to train all four sessions that I'm supposed to do, I'm gonna get my conditioning in, et cetera, and that's my win for the week because my life is crazy like this. So that's the way I view this, is just reframing how I view the training process in general. Yep. I think the only thing I have to add is like, if you, if you were trying to set yourself up for success, you would want to control the, or, or maximize the variables that are under your control as much as possible. So, for example, you're on a 24-hour shift. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean, yeah, I'm going to skip uh, three different meals and just have, you know, breakfast, for example, before leaving the hospital. And three Red Bulls. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, that's, that's going to be it. So, you know, if you have your nutrition relatively under control with a health-promoting dietary pattern, um, you know, your training is set up to uh, allow some flexibility rather than having very rigid uh, processes. Uh, and then again, ultimately ascribing less sort of importance to any single session, any single exercise, or any single sort of even input into your training. I mean, I would just assume that you're gonna PR anyway, for example. Yeah. Like if it's me, if, I mean, I don't work outside of barbell medicine anymore, this is my main baby, but I wish I could get assigned to a night shift because I, if I go on night shift, I'm gonna PR. Historically, whenever I'm on night shift, PR start raining out of nowhere, and I have no idea why. I have no reason to stay up at night now. I'm not a degenerate, so I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't do it. <laughs> but yeah, I would just I would just assume uh, all of the things being equal that you're going to do great. So having that positive kind of outlook on stuff, uh, good nutrition, and then uh, I don't know that I would recommend naps because I just feel like that's not really going to help. It's like. Uh, uh, it could help acute performance, but if it, to the extent it compromises sleep drive later on, it's probably net negative. So probably wouldn't do that. Would just go in and train and go on with my life. Because you know, that's a, that's a good summary of uh, you know this whole deal. That's right. Train and go on with your life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming out here, Norfolk, for our first seminar back. Really appreciate it.
And that is it from our question and answer session from our most recent seminar in Virginia Beach, Virginia, held at Iron Asylum Gym. Now, we still have three seminars left in 2020. And if you liked this content, we think you'd love our seminar. We'd love to have you there. So we'll be in Chicago at the end of October. Then we'll be in Boston in November and then Dallas, Texas in December. Uh, Check out the link in the description below if you'd like to join us at one of these seminars. And as always, we're going to ask you to leave us a five-star rating and a review. really helps drive traffic to our podcast. And we'll see you next Monday and every Monday right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Have a great week, everyone. See you next time. Oh,